This is an OSV Podcasts production. To learn more about OSV Podcast Network, visit osvpodcasts.com. Now I'm thinking about cruising in Waco, Texas. Thinking about cruising down Waco, Texas. Be a good song. It would be a good song. Hey, you know what? If I was the nicknaming type and I'm not, I would call you Waco Lewis. <laughs> I like, can see it. Hey, Waco. Or I'd call you West Texas. Is Waco that, in West Texas? Ne- Central, East I can't call you Central Texas. That's no, that a terrible nickname. <laughs> but West Texas, I could I could totally walk into your house and be like, "What's up, West Texas?" I, I could be that. like, "Matrix Three is better than Matrix Two, West Texas." <laughs> I actually don't know if I believe that. I know you said two is your favorite, but to me, two and three are just like the same movie. Yeah. So this is why three wasn't my favorite. I still think they all go together. If I could have rewritten it, I would have. You know, that's how I feel about Endgame. Gosh, that was such a disappointment. Yeah, that's another podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> this one, wanted to continue the, the Matrix conversation because we got bogged down talking about God last time. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> this is the 10,000 Places podcast, where we look for God in 10,000 places. Where will we go? What will we find? Hopefully, Jesus. And welcome to our podcast about God and Catholicism and culture. Uh, this is Which 10, apparently 000, Lewis yeah, I know, right? right? Well, get out of the way. This is 10,000 Places. I'm Alex Gilder. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Lewis Pearson. And what do you want to say about The Matrix, Lewis? Well, so the third one, up until that point, the story had been written so it taps into Christianity, it taps into Hinduism, it taps into Buddhism, it taps into mm-hmm. many things, Taoism and so on. Yeah, But absolutely. it became very clear by the third one, this is a eternal return story. This is a reincarnation story. I don't know if I agree with you. I think it was until this Neo, mm-hmm. right? Because it had been, this was the sixth time, but something different had happened for the whole thing, okay. right? Okay, Well, I'm going to talk about Plato in a second, but you keep going. Okay, because so the reincarnation, and the, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. But okay, so here's what I think. I think a lot of people got that, and that's why a lot of people didn't like it. I mean, Matrix has like 89% Rotten Tomatoes. Matrix 2 has like 68 or 70-something. Matrix 3, like 28 or 30%, mm. right? People just didn't like this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that I like it for more than just its emotional content, because I'll tell you what, guys, I still choke up every time Trinity dies. Mm. Oh, man, that part is so powerful. I'm going to choke up right now. Mm. Oh, man. But anyway, the thing is, when I first saw it, I didn't like them. And in part, I didn't like them for this reason. It feels like so anticlimactic. What we wanted to happen... And that's why I'm a little frustrated with the fourth movie, even though I joined it, because it's like, no, you did. You just restarted. Although it is it does have some differences. But but what everybody wants to happen is they want the complete toppling of the machine force. And then the heroes like Neo beats everybody and Mm -hmm. the humans are all completely free. And that's what we're all expecting. And that's what we all wanted. And what they provided was I don't know if it was as good as that or not or better or whatever. But it was interesting in that what makes this Neo different And it's key because it happens in the second one. He says, you were supposed to have this connection to humanity. You were built to have things that would deepen your affection for the human race so that when the time came, which is now, you would make the choice and you would reinsert yourself as the prime program into the matrix and stabilize the balance. Thus, The remainder from the equation. Right. Because the basically, I don't know if everybody totally understands The reason why the Neo program was started is because the Matrix was 99% effective. But, man, we're we're going in the weeds. (laughs) 
<laughs> but the remainder leads to a fatal but, crash. Right. Because the one percent who reject the matrix keeps growing and growing exponentially. And so eventually it reaches a breaking point and it crashes. And so when they came up with Neo and the path of the one, he was meant to kind of draw in that one percent. And then when he returns to the source, basically reinsert himself with their coding back into the program, thus balancing the equation and making sure the matrix can survive. And if that doesn't happen, when the crash happens, all humanity dies. Right. Yeah, so they keep losing, quote unquote, whole crops. Right. And so the architect who is done very poorly by Will Ferrell, but I understood what they were trying to get <laughs> at. But the architect is saying you were supposed to love humanity. That's always been. But something happened this time that is different. You attached yourself to a particular human. And that's Trinity. Right. Yeah. The love. So your connection to the architect's conversation with Neo is the most Christian kernel in that movie. Absolutely. It is. So I think one of the strengths of Christianity, and it's in Judaism as well, and to some extent in Islam, I think, and this is me talking in-house as a Christian, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody, is that God does not just have a love for a humanity in some abstract way. God has a radical love for each and every particular human, and that the value of a human is what defines the value of humanity as an entire whole. Yeah. Right? What makes this Neo the best one and the one who is willing to make an ultimate actual sacrifice instead of just restarting because mm -hmm. he actually dies. Although, again, the, there's questions about how they get upended by the fourth one. But even so, it's not just a pure upending. They do something different. He makes the choice to save Trinity. And through doing that, actually saves humanity in a different way than it happened before by creating a truce. Mm -hmm. And so when he dies in the third one, that is the most Christian symbolism you see. He actually, when you look at the way his, the light shines through his body, yes. it is a cross. Yes. It is not an accident. It is absolutely on the nose Christian imagery of Christ's sacrifice, which makes no sense in an internal recurrence. Yeah. And it makes no sense even in the eternal recurrence that they set up because Neo wasn't supposed to do what he did. But there was the problem with Agent Smith and all that. But it was a real sacrifice. And so when the, the machine says it is done and then reverently carries away his body, like mm -hmm. even the machine learned the value mm -hmm. of what Neo did, yeah, which was actually sacrifice himself for humans. You may be rehabbing, I think, some of the metaphysics for me in the third one. There are some problems, yeah. granted. But So, you know, Dostoevsky, I forget in which novel he says this, that one of the characters is scolding the other. Like a typical Russian, you love the poor, but the one particular poor person shows up on your porch, you can't stand him, you hate his guts. Yeah, right, right. And this particularity, I also think of then Cardinal Ratzinger's introduction to Christianity, where he says, oh, the Christian so revelation was the God of the philosophers of mathematics of the universe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. Tribal God. Yes. I love those two articles together yeah. are one of the most important things written in Christian history. <laughs> yeah. And so this love of the particular, and I love the way that also Ratzinger writes it. When we think about being God, we think it's got to be the God of the universe and mathematics. We don't think about caring for this little dust ball planet on the far wing of a Milky Way mm -hmm. galaxy. Mm -hmm. But God doesn't think that way. God is a particularist God. Absolutely. Every hair on your head. And so, yeah, this part of the matrix really nails that vision yes. of Christianity. The incarnation is the scandal of the faith. It has to be. When I was it's in my wandering. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and uh, foolishness to the Greeks, right? 
right. First that, Corinthians. I was, I was there. I thought, you're right, First Corinthians. This is... <laughs> Good job, Paul. It didn't seem fair to me when I had been wandering from the faith to think, I have to be in a particular place and time and hear a message from one person who might know the message to share it with me. It seems like if there's a God behind everything, it's got to be the kind of thing that I can figure out, divine through thinking. It's very Greek. Right. There's something Buddhist about it as well. But it, yeah, and or, so that's why the incarnation seems so. This is why it's a scandal. There's a particular place and time, and it happened. And it's like not the most important place and time at all. Yeah, <laughs> like the whole Roman <laughs> Empire is happening, and then here we are in backwater Galilee. It's not a logical conclusion. It's an historical fact. Right. There are radically different categories, and that's really what bothered me for a long time. It didn't seem fair. And many people I talk to who have problems with Christianity, it's something like that is in the background. They think, but that seems so arbitrary. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so what happens for me as a scholar of Plato, I start seeing this eventually, that in the Phaedrus and in the symposium, he tells similar stories. Socrates, the main character, tells the story about, well, what happens when everything's over with? And it's a story of reincarnation, kind of. And so at the- Is this the root of the Stoic mythology? They have an eternal recurrence narrative, don't they? Yeah. Well, Every 10,000 years, the Logos repeats itself. The Stoics, what would Socrates do? That was their, yeah, literally their, their okay. motto. From Epictetus, his handbook, okay. WWSD, that's actually what they <laughs> So what happens is, okay, this world isn't all there is. And Plato knew that. And there's something behind this world that helps to give this world its order, its being. And there's something beyond this world that we're meant for as well. We don't come here to just end it all. The best he could, I think, figure out without divine revelation, at least the full revelation that was given to the Jews, is, okay, maybe we come back? But that seems to be pointless. Why right. would we just keep coming? And so he tells a few stories in two of his dialogues, at least, that if you do this enough times, like 10,000 times, you'll stay. Like every time you die, you go to the round of the gods, like where they're having their chariots. But if you do it long enough, you'll stay there and become like the gods forever. Is this why some people say there was maybe some cross-pollination with whatever was going on in the Vedic traditions and what Plato was saying? There could be. There's evidence of... Like not that just one way, but that they were communicating with right. each other, right? And if you read the Timaeus, there's a lot of reference to the Egyptians and how the Egyptians are really old. And Socrates is telling a fifth-hand story from an old Egyptian story. Herodotus has that stuff too. And the Egyptians are telling the Greeks, you guys are young. Yeah. You guys don't know what you're talking yeah. about. So what helped me with Plato to avoid a kind of Hindu or Buddhist reincarnation trap is to realize... I think even through reason alone, you can figure out it can't just be you keep doing it over and over because it's a fun ride. Right. That's a human explanation for something that a human doesn't understand. Yeah. I think Plato could even figure out through reason alone, there's got to be an end game here, an actual ultimate story, because this eternal recurrence, that ain't an ultimate story. That's a placeholder. And so I think the third matrix, if it's channeling something like what Plato's got going there, I could get more on board with that metaphysic. What I think is powerful is that it is trying to do mythology and the best it can come up with, it doesn't know how to do the final story like you're talking about, the ultimate story, mm -hmm. the complete culmination. What and, satisfies. Right. It is drawing on something that wants that, I think. Mm -hmm. I do. Here's what I do think, and this can be seen as a weakness or a strength, and I could myself see it either way. I do think they wanted the third one to end ambiguously. Mm -hmm. I don't think they wanted to have produced an answer. Because when you look at the first Matrix, it really has that Joseph Campbell sort of style. It's the everyman who goes through the hero's journey. 
and then actualizes and comes home, but changed, right? And so that's the stable myth. And then they completely upend that brilliantly, I think. And that's, I think, like good postmoderns. But I think then they thought that the third one would be this kind of, and then that's that. (laughs) All right. We finally beat the machines. Hooray. But also just like, yeah, did we win? Did we lose? What did we gain? Did we gain something? Is it stable? I think that's intended by them. Mm -hmm. And I do not think that's a strength. I think kind of like Plato, it's one of the best things you can really come up with that still lands on the side of meaning and value and purpose Mm -hmm. without taking seriously or having the Christian revelation. I think that's right. Is this a podcast where I pick a fight with Bishop Barron or is this too late to start that one? I got to say, though, because he can be a polarizing figure. I like Bishop Aaron. So I really enjoy his That's not his why work. I said do it. I just love scraps, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I enjoy his work so much that every once in a while he hits for me a sour note. And I think, ah, because he's such a, an influential and typically great source of formation and information for people, when you go wrong, it's really bad. Yeah. And so I think something like what you said for Plato, I remember I was at a Christian philosopher's conference and someone was saying, why do you care so much about getting Plato right? Because we've got Christ now. I said, well, you know, I got to answer. <laughs> Ask Augustine that because he was pretty concerned about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Plato, you know, he has an eternal soul like the rest of us. And one day he's going to say, what did you do with my work? And why didn't you use it to conduce to the goodness and the glory of God's kingdom? Now that it's been revealed, I got to answer not only to God, but all of my brothers and sisters connected to Christ. <laughs> and one of my friends, a, a Protestant said, you know, I never thought about that. It's like, well, he's alive in Christ or he's not. Yeah. But, he, but his work. And the early Christians are all unanimous. Socrates, Plato, and maybe Aristotle, but definitely Socrates and Plato. They made it. Yeah. And then the article, later they get into limbo and all that. But the early, like Justin yeah. Martyr argues Socrates is definitely in heaven. Mm-hmm. Plato's in heaven. When Bishop Barron wrote about, one, the second Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, and two, recently, everyone's becoming a Platonist and it's not a good thing. Those were the two sour notes for me when Bishop Barron wrote about them. What does he say is bad about becoming a Platonist? Well, what he did was, and I hope he could reach out and tell me I'm wrong about this. Does he know how much Christian theology has taken its cue from the entire system of Platonism? So there's a dude named Karl Popper, with a K, Karl Popper, who wrote a, a series of books called The Open Society and Its Critics. And his books became a famous Cliff Notes version of Plato for people. And so Karl Popper argues in in this book. I don't know this, but I know enough about Karl Popper to know that I don't trust him to totally get Plato. He writes in this book that Plato is a totalitarian and the Republic is a blueprint for communism. And for that reason, we shouldn't be Platonists. And That's what I'm doing. Listener, my thumb is down and my tongue is out and I'm going. Right. And so anyone who reads The Republic would see over and over Socrates is saying the whole point of this book is not to play utopia. His conversation partners continue to ask, let's build the city. How do we make it real? And over and over Socrates says, this is not the point. You got to read the book. You don't have to be someone trained in play. Just read it. But many people just take Karl Popper's gloss of the Republic. And yeah, if that's who Plato was. I had a friend in grad school say the Republic is evil. And I said, why? He goes, because could you imagine building a city like that? And I was like, I don't know if that's what he was imagining. Right. So this is not what he's doing. And yeah, if you want to condemn that, sure. But the problem is if you condemn that and call that Plato, then everything great Plato's doing, no one's ever going to look at again. Mm. And this is something that doesn't make sense to many people when they know I'm a particularist and I am a Plato scholar. 
because Wikipedia will tell you Plato's a universalist, he's a rationalist, he only cares about these principles out there in the ether, the forms, the theories or whatever. But everything Plato ever wrote was a dialogue with particular characters in particular places. He is a particularist. You are the one that opened that up to me and that still blows my mind. Everybody does always say Aristotle's a particularist, Plato's the universalist. And yet every work of Aristotle starts, okay, here's the fundamental principle. Mm -hmm. Let's deduce the next steps. Every one of Plato's begins. So these guys are sitting there. <laughs> they're in the marketplace or they're on the way to the movie theater or whatever. Or they're hanging out in the locker room. Yeah, right. And then one says, hey, check out Tommy's beard. <laughs> That's coming in good. And somehow that leads to a conversation with the nature of reality. There's a Plato scholar named Drew Highland. He's got a book called Finitude and Transcendence in the Platonic Dialogues. One of the best. And then he goes Hegelian by the end. I don't care for the latter half of the book. But in the beginning, he says all these books. And I think... What Plato does, he's doing what God does with creation. We all start where we are, our historical throneness, our place and time. We Get have no choice height. That's Heideggerian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And yet, in the particular finitude of our time and place that we have no choice over, there are moments of transcendence where our conversations leave where we are and touch something that is everywhere. Amen. Yes. And we never completely like a Hegelian synthesis, sublate and leave behind our finitude. It always stays Can't. with us. Yes. And that's not a bad thing. No. So I do think, though, that the Platonic tradition, not necessarily Plato, mm -hmm. but the Platonic tradition, some of the ancients and the medievals go a little bit too far down this route of we basically become part of the God over soul. Mm -hmm. This isn't what they're saying. But this is more Neoplatonic. Yeah, yeah. And that is the tradition of Platonism that most affects it is, yeah. the Christian yeah philosophical and theological trajectory. Listeners might not know. So Plotinus, like read Plotinus and you'll get all these theories. And yeah. The Oversoul, yeah. The Aeneids. But don't read that actually. Read <laughs> read Proclus. Okay. That would probably be okay. the more simple approach. Or just pick up a book about Neoplatonism. Because <laughs> <laughs> Proclus is even going to begin with, there is the one. And then he's going to expand that proposition. And then the one is, you know, anyway. But yeah, I think that the kind of danger of some of the more classical and medieval metaphysical traditions of Christianity is that, it, at least in the West, there does seem to be this almost, our bodies are barely physical. <laughs> They're so spiritual. And we're basically, we, that's what leads to this whole notion of heaven is just pure contemplation. And we just... And gives people this notion of we sit on clouds and we play harps and we stare at God. This temptation to Gnosticism. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is some of the danger of the Neoplatonist tradition and that the desire is to shake off all of this that is corruptible in any way. And then that gets mixed in with shaking off all the flesh itself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And no longer being timeful, fleshy creatures and becoming basically just participants in God's own essence yeah. And so, right, in Hinduism, there's reincarnation, which requires metempsychosis. The soul moves from mm -hmm. body to body like clothes. Resurrection is different. You get yeah. your body back, not some other body that you can keep changing modes like a video game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think our bodies matter. And I think God oh. has created the world of flesh on Pun. purpose. Pun. I know, right? Bodies <laughs> matter. They are matter. They do matter. They so smell, too. They smell and they can be smelled. <laughs> These are all true facts about bodies. That's true. Um, we lost Justin like 20 years ago. He's gone. He's done. He was the one who wanted to do this at night too. <laughs> I'm realizing from the early on in the conversation, my range of nerdiness is much narrower. 
in the Republic, some people stay quiet until they blow up. <laughs> <laughs> or until like an oracle, they finally crystallize everything yeah. and make it clear. <laughs> I don't know the way he's rubbing his eyes and yawning. I don't know if that's his future <laughs> or ours. I was really drawn to Hinduism, I'll say. And so reincarnation makes me feel like I have more chances. Mm -hmm. uh, my story is deeper than I know. I matter more because I used to be Julius Caesar in a previous <laughs> Different people have different reasons why they like it. But I started realizing, you know, if I'm really married to the Matrix, like Cypher, yeah. you know, I want to be someone important, you know, like an actor. Like an actor. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. Love this. If I've said... No to Atman Brahman, the one in Hinduism. If I keep coming back to this world because I love it so much, if I'm so knit to this world that I can't say yes to God and I only say yes to the comforts of this world, what makes me think I'm ever going to get out? Oh, yeah. So I used to think it was a great compliment to be called an old soul. And I started listening. No, that means I'm a failure. I'm never well, that's the whole, out. that's part that people miss in Hinduism. There is some eternal recurrence. But to bring it back to what we're talking about with time, it really started hitting me how much things matter. Like I was so gone from creation. I didn't well, care about people. When I got married to Angela, I thought, you know, one day she's going to die and I can become a priest then. And <laughs> you people share are, the story so literally. People are <laughs> furniture in my life for me to climb on yeah. to get to God because God's the only thing that matters. You guys don't matter. And I've eventually, through many experiences, God's broken that down in me and showed me, no, 10,000 places matter. All these yeah. places matter. Even these weird movies that, not only Justin, but no one has seen like Street Fighter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Street Fighter. Such a terrible movie. And so uh, time matters, right? It does. I, I don't just get another chance, quote unquote. I, I do think that we have to envision that the world is timeful. And to bring it around. So I like this, that we're heading in this place of attachment and like, where does the world fit in this? One of the strengths of the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> and Justin's lost uh, again. <laughs> yeah. And we're back. Um, but one of the things I love about the Matrix there is this notion that, and I feel it. I think philosophers feel this. I think theologians feel this. I don't get the sense, and I'm not trying to be elitist here. I don't get the sense that everybody feels this. But when I connect with the matrix, the one of the reasons why it moves me so deeply is because some of us at some point in our lives realized this world doesn't totally feel like I belong to it. Mm -hmm. Like something's off. Why is everybody walking around acting like this is just normal and obvious and we should all be doing? Why is nobody every once in a while stopping and going, what is going on right now? And why are we all doing this? And why are we here to begin with? And that there is a veil to be pulled back into a deeper life and that that call to truth is a harder life. But it's better, even if it's not as comfortable, even if it's not always as beautiful, even if it's more dangerous, because... It's the truth. And that's the fight Cyrus has. Oh, Cypher? Cypher. Excuse yeah. me, not Cyrus. Yeah. Cypher. He says at one point when he's finally making his moment of betrayal, this is in the first Matrix listeners, he says he lied to us. If he had told us what the Matrix really was, we would have told him to shove that blue pill or red pill. And Trinity says back to him, you don't believe that. And he does. But that's the difference mm -hmm. is he can't handle, I'm quoting a few good men, he can't handle the truth. <laughs> and we're called to that. And so what I find really powerful about many of these religions, but Christianity, I think, has this too and does it in many ways for me, that just the best ways. This world is not what it's supposed to be. And we're constantly being invited into a deeper truth that 
frees us from all this, not bad, this is the power of Christianity, not bad stuff, but stuff that is distracting us from the reality, the truth itself that we're called to. Once we can make our peace with that, we can start to really enjoy the world for what it is because we know that it's on the way to someplace else. I think instead of watching The Matrix Live and making that our next podcast, mm-hmm. we need to have a Justin Reaction podcast to Street Fighter <laughs> starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Who wants to go home? Who I, wants to go with me? I have a quick question. Were you both Christian when you first saw The Matrix? I was not. I'm trying to remember. I was in high school. Yeah, it came out too. in 99. I was wandering. Okay. It's just interesting because I think it's a great movie. It's a great trilogy, but it didn't impact me in the same way. Yeah. And I just wonder if it's because I saw it from within the Christian tradition. And so it was almost the way I saw The Matrix was like, this is a good story. I'm fascinated by it. There are Christian parallels. Oh, isn't this interesting how non-Christians view the world and are trying to make sense of reality in some way? Yeah. Um, And maybe this is the best they can do. Oh, so I saw the second and third. Mm Mm-hmm. After my adult reversion. Okay. Which may be why I was so off-put. Yeah, yeah. The, well, yeah, but a lot of people were off-put by the third <laughs> Matrix. Yeah. Well, for me, it was the Hindu metaphysic. Mm-hmm. That's interesting observation there. Yeah, because I was very confused by the second and third. I watched it a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, and it started to make sense again. But when I first saw it, I remember being lost. Whereas the first one made Oh, the first one is, it's, yeah, the first one is a standalone. Yeah. And I think the trilogy is amazing, but I would say that like it's the first one that really yeah. just changed the game in so many ways. It was genre defining yeah. and it really did ask these questions at such an profound level while completely entertaining us. Yeah. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Actually, I do think that the second and third one probably sacrifice a bit of storytelling to get their philosophical points across. I don't think they do it as much as other people would say. I wouldn't say, you know, like. You don't need a syllabus and a highlighter to watch these movies. (laughs) And that's actually a joke made in the fourth one. But I think the first Matrix has such a simple elegance in its marriage of philosophical inquiry and good storytelling that I I don't know how many times we've actually seen it be that good. Star Wars, although Star Wars isn't really philosophical, it's more mythological. I think that it's really in a class all its own. Oh, I watched the first one over and over. Oh, yeah. I've seen it so many mm-hmm. times and I still watch it. I watch the Matrix trilogy maybe once every two years, something like that. But I've seen the first one a lot more times. Yeah. And I basically broke that VHS. And yes, that was, <laughs> I had the VHS. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you off air how the first time I saw it. Okay. I'm sure that'll generate an email from a <laughs> yeah, like that story. But that's why you've been quiet the whole time. There's some, some secret. Some yeah. Sinister, sinister, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. And, you know, if you have any questions. So, Justin, if somebody wanted to get in touch with us, maybe ask a question or something, share, what should they share do? your own love for the Matrix. Um, yeah. Yeah. Email us at 10,000placespodcast, all spelled out, at gmail.com. This has been 10,000 Places. I'm Alex Gildner. I'm Justin Aquila. And I'm one of Jean-Claude Van Damme's biggest fans, Louis Pearson. <laughs> May the force be with you. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.